Before we uh, have the reading of the scripture and prayer, I'd like to break with our tradition on this uh, day in which we uh, celebrate mothers. Uh, just to share a brief word from uh, John Bunyan, uh, how he extols uh, the virtue of the godly woman in his uh, story, The Pilgrim's Progress. He says, I will say it again. When the Savior was come, women rejoiced in him before either man or angel. I read not that ever any man did give unto Christ so much as one groat. But the women followed him and ministered to him of their substance. T'was a woman that washed his feet with tears and a woman that anointed his body to the burial. They were women who wept when he was going to the cross and women that followed him from the cross and sat by his sepulcher when he was buried. They were women that was first with him at his resurrection morn, and women that brought tidings first to his disciples that he was risen from the dead. Women, therefore, are highly favored and show by these things that they are sharers in the grace of life. A wonderful word from uh, John Bunyan. Uh, we are thankful to God for godly uh, mothers and women. Count, we count indeed all godly women in the church as mothers to us uh, and to our children. So we thank the Lord again for the gift of godly women and mothers in the church and in the home. Well, turning now to the reading of the scriptures... I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. I invite your attention to God's Word here in this passage of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said, to the, same, and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? And they said, the first Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, 
you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Well, thanks be to God for his word to us this morning, and let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, again, we bow our heads in worship and praise and adoration to our God who reigns on high, uh, who is enthroned in heaven, creator of all things in the heaven and the earth and the sea, ruler, Lord, over all. We bow our heads to the God of our redemption, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working all things uh, for the salvation of your chosen people. We are thankful that you are with us. Uh, In this world, there are many dangers, toils, and snares. We are thankful that we have the grace of God to lead, to guide, to watch over, to protect, to provision us for the way. Again, we thank God for the provision of godly mothers, those that thou hast given unto us to instruct us in the faith to bless our homes. And we ask for your blessings upon them, that we might esteem them even as you esteem the vocation and high calling of motherhood. Uh, We are thankful that, um, again, you feed and clothe us more so than we could hope or think, that you ask us not to be anxious about anything in life, Uh, and so give us grace to do that, that we might set aside the cares of the day, the week behind, the week ahead, that we might focus now on the worship of God, the meeting with you and your word. We humbly pray that you would be here to bless the word unto us this morning. We pray for thy grace upon Phil as he holds forth from the word that he might speak with clarity and strength of voice. We pray that we might have ears to hear as we sit under the word that we might uh, soak it in and your spirit would apply it to our hearts as we leave this place rejoicing, uh, having met with God in the word and having been among the people of God to fellowship with one another and to engage in the great corporate affair of worshiping our God. Be with those who are away, who are ill, who are traveling. May thy blessings be upon them, but chiefly at this time because of thy uh, uh, omnipresence. We know that thou would be with them, but you will be fully here with us. So bless us this morning with the Word and the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. One of the things that I learned very quickly when I was in the Army was the importance of the chain of command. Because you could get in a lot of trouble if you didn't understand who the boss was. The concept chain of command really goes beyond the concept of rank. A ranking officer might go to a different unit, but he has no authority over that unit because he's not in the chain of command. It's really beyond rank. Really speaks to authority. And this text this morning before us is about the supremacy of the authority of Christ. 
that he has rank and command authority over everyone and everything. And our text in the essence of it is that he has authority over an empty profession. It's a a stirring concept. It means our Lord has expectations about his people and he shows up to demand answers, to exert his authority, and that authority is resisted. Herein, they're in trouble. It is a Passion Week. Jesus is teaching in the temple. In Mark, he is walking to and fro, exercising service in the temple. In Luke, he is teaching and preaching the gospel. It is a testimony that the divine mission is pressing upon the Son of God. We have this concept in America, do we not, of a bucket list. I'm going to do these things before I die. Think about it. Jesus is doing the same thing he's been doing all of his life. He has no bucket list. He is doing the will of God, even though within a few short days he will be crucified upon the cross. What a great reminder of the majesty of our Savior. He continues to do what he's always done, despite the fact that the end is near. But let's deal with this concept that our Savior has authority over everything and everyone. There's a long parade of our Lord's authority over his creation in Scripture. Mark, pardon me, Matthew chapter 8, there is a storm. Jesus rebukes it. And the men marvel, saying, what kind of man is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? Imagine uh, springtime, Oklahoma. We deal with the terrible concept of tornadoes and the awful size of hail. Ultimately, Jesus is in command. We do not like it, but he's in command and has authority even over the weather. I don't know how he institutes it. I mean, I understand the laws of nature, and I understand that he sets them in motion as well. But the storms arise because of his authority, and they finish because of his authority. One of the reasons by application we can walk in a measure of peace, even though our roofs may be Uh, in the process of being destroyed. Our Lord knows. Our Lord gives us peace because he has authority over the wind and the sea. Mark chapter 2 is a prelude to healing a man. Again, it was an age in which medical technology barely existed. Jesus heals a man, but he does something even more radical, even a greater expression of his worldwide authoritative conquest, he heals his sin. That's power. Our Lord wields it according to his will. Of all of the quests in American culture, it seemingly is for medicine to keep us alive longer and longer. I have no problems with that, but ultimately it's a vain pursuit. 
Would that we would pursue the forgiveness of sin and guilt in Jesus Christ. For he has authority over the greatest peril of the human heart. He can will it to go away by his actions upon the cross. That is authority. Luke chapter 12, he counsels us to fear him who has authority to cast into hell. That is awesome authority that he can dispatch men into eternal and everlasting ruin. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he has authority over all things visible and invisible so that even the spirit world obeys him. Perhaps one of the most decisive of all texts is where we will someday end in our study of the book of Matthew. He issues the Great Commission, then he turns to his disciples and says, all authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. He is at the pinnacle of the chain of command. No one is over him. Even though in the eternities he will submit to the Father, he has all authority. And therefore, he has authority over the temple to cleanse it and to destroy it and to replace it. And that will set him in enmity against the temple mafia. It is a great application for the church today. I sometimes fear that the church has gone long and far away from the design of our Savior. We must not forget he has authority to come and to destroy and to cleanse and thank God in his grace to replace, and that he will do. The Sanhedrin wants to know by what authority he can cleanse the temple. The answer is simple. The temple was a place where God localized his presence in the Holy of Holies. It existed for him, by him, through him. They have perverted it and usurped his authority he comes to make amends, and they are in trouble. He has every right to condemn their use of his temple. That is why in John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus says, tear this temple down. He will tear it down. But then he appends the reality that I will raise it up in three days, and he does because he is the end time temple. Now in heaven unreachable by men who hate him. The time of his choosing, he will come to gather his own. He destroys, he rebuilds, because he is the Lord of the temple. Certainly by way of application, it's a reminder that all of us are stewards. We will give an account to the Lord Jesus. He has authority over everything within us, about us, over us, under us, and everything that surrounds us because he is the Lord and giver of life and death. Apostle John says he has the keys of death and hell. Driving home the other night, speeding a little bit, traveling south, I'd forgotten something, made me mad at myself, had to go back and retrieve it. Driving home, speeding a little bit, guess what I passed? Yeah, Midwest City Policeman. For whatever reason, he was asleep at the switch or studying something or writing something. I suspect the latter. 
I doubt he was asleep at anything. But it's a good reminder that the authority of the Lord surrounds all of us. His eyes never close. And neither does he wink at our actions. One of the greatest applications of this is found in the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth in his first epistle. Uh, They're committing immorality, and he says, you're the temple of God. You are. He doesn't say you're like a temple. I understand that many in the American church believe that the church is like a temple. I'm much more radical in that. We are the temple. Therefore, how can we join ourselves to immorality? And if it's not immorality, then you fill in the blank. Anger, whatever we're obsessive-compulsive about, anxiety. We're the temple. He comes to dwell within us by his spirit. We should keep clean hearts, short accounts, because of who he is, is the Lord of our lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives us the greatest of all applications in that text when he tells the church after he has reminded them that they are the temple of God when he says, you are not your own. Imagine that in American culture. I'm a self-made man. I make my own way. Here is Jesus saying, you're not your own. He owns you, lock, stock, and barrel. I understand we recoil at that. I understand we don't like that. But when Jesus says, you are not your own, I have purchased you with a price, he is telling the church that he owns us. Thank God that he does. Because it's the only thing that keeps us safe. And it ought to drive us in a sense of worship and stewardship to render to him who is worthy as Lord of the temple. The authority of Jesus, of course, uh, extends over everything, including the temple. But it is also an authority that is unquestionable. Or, perhaps I should state it better, it is authority that should not be questioned. I understand some of us as, as adults, including myself, act like little children different times in our lives. We want to question everything. But there's something in this text that reminds us to be very careful about questioning Jesus in light of who he is. The enemy comes. Let me reset the context, if you will. The enemy comes, deputation from the Sanhedrin. They were not at all happy about his cleansing of the temple. They want to know by what authority and who gave it to him. It's an interesting concept. Think of it in this way. The Lord of heaven is being asked to submit to his creatures and to give an answer. They have reversed their role before the Lord of heaven. Earth is asking heaven to give an answer. The roles are reversed. It is the way of man to think that heaven owes us answers. Heaven owes us nothing. In light of the fall, 
we will get but one thing, eternal ruin, but heaven is gracious and gives us Christ. They're seeking answers, but they're asking the wrong questions, and they are standing before the one who alone is the answer to everything, and they seek to question him like a private would a general. By the way, in all of my years in the army, I never saw a private question a general. And if one ever did, he was in serious trouble. It's good to learn from them. Job does that, does he not? I imagine, and I can well imagine, in the depths of the passion of his sorrow and broken heart, he perhaps began to wonder about the authority of God to do what he did. Job 38, God says, by the way, Job, where were you when I framed the universe? Where were you when I spoke and it happened? Job chapter 40, verse 2, does the fault finder contend with the Almighty? That's an incredible question. It comes from the right person at the right time. The almighty God saying, Job, are you going to contend with me? Who are you to argue with me in what I've done? Whatever God does is right by the de facto reality that he is God, and God makes no mistakes. I understand it's a difficult concept. I understand broken hearts. I understand anger and anxiety. But the scriptures bid us to understand the Lord God Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth who frames us, knits us together in the womb of our mothers and sets us about to expand and to advance his kingdom. It's the essential reminder that God is the sovereign and owes us no answers. Job chapter 42 and verse 6. Job retreats and repents in ashes. That's the right response to the authority of Christ walking in the temple that existed for him. It is the right response for each of us who exist for the glory of the Son of God. Another place of questioning, as you know, probably one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible. If you wish to turn there, Romans chapter 9. It's a long litany to the sovereignty of God. Circular logic. If I may use something of a twisted phrase. Paul says of God that I can have mercy on whom I have mercy. I can harden whom I harden. I don't think that logic would work with a logic teacher preparing someone for a debate, but he doesn't have to. God doesn't have to follow the rules of logic. He's above logic. He's above the law in light of who he is. God doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I better read uh, Robert's Rules of Order to uh, learn how to go govern heaven. I better read the Constitution of the United States to learn how to govern America. God is the law by virtue of who he is. And so there's a fault finder, is there not, imaginary or real in the book of Romans for 
who asks Paul the question, if that's true, then how does he still find fault for who resists his will? The question in and of itself is a remarkable expression of the authority and the majesty of God that no one can resist his will, and yet he still holds us responsible and accountable. And Paul, like Jesus, gives no answer. Who are you, O oh man? Does the creature say to the creator, Stand up, Lord, I'm in your presence, give me an answer? Hardly. Does the pottery say to the potter, Why did you make me this way? A vessel of honor or a vessel for destruction fitted out for eternal ruin? It's a great reminder used, of course, by a number of the Old Testament prophets. The potter has total right over the thing that he's making. Cleaning our own temple here this morning, Grace Bible Church. Waging my unrelenting battle with leaves. I spied a wasp. I dispatched it into eternity. The wasp would say, Bower Socks, why did you do that? I have a right to live. I have a right to bear my young, to make a nest. I don't know. I just had a broom and dispatched it. My will was stronger than his. That may sound a bit crude, but it's well worth in the life of the church of restudying these great texts of the Old Testament of the majesty of Christ and his total, absolute authority. That asleep or awake, he governs everything. And by his good providence, he makes us his temple and speaks to us about being fruitful. And then he shows up in an earthly temple that has perverted its usefulness and demands for an account. God is sovereign. We will answer to God. Stark reminder of our accountability to keep short accounts and that he's a forgiving God and a gracious God to us. God will not stand before us as student before the teacher or serf before the Lord. He is first and foremost and utterly unique. He brooks no equals, only servants. And that is what we are, servants of the great high king in service to his temple. I do remind you, of course, as I must, the issue of the gospel. You want answers to everything in your life, particularly those things that have turned south upon you, those days of discouragement, the crushing ruin, maybe the loss of a customer, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child. The answer is Christ. Christ. I understand it's difficult to be satisfied sometimes with the answer. But the more you meditate upon Christ, the greater the answer is. And so the Apostle Paul tells us, I have learned to be satisfied with Christ. Good times and bad. Rich and poor. Lean and full. To be content with Christ, the ultimate answer.
Well, Jesus answers the question with a question. Was John's baptism from heaven or men? He catches them on the horns of a dilemma. If they, if they say it's uh, from man, then they're going to make the people mad because they revere John. If they say from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why aren't you, why aren't you being baptized like, like John was calling you to be? Of course, John's baptism was in fulfillment of the prophets Malachi and Isaiah, but they dodged the question, and he dodges theirs. By the way, there's a measure of striking irony in that. I, I, I sometimes struggle with this, but I'm mindful that there are a number of places in Scripture that God says, oh, you want folly? Well, I'll give you folly. You want to play leanness of soul? Then I'll make your soul lean, and you tell me how it works out in the end. Be very careful playing around with such nonsense before God. You want to sow the wind? I'll give you the whirlwind. You want fools to rule over you? You watch and wait and see the men and the women that I put over you. It's a dangerous game to play in light of who God is. And so I want to look momentarily at our Lord's authority based upon personal ownership. We know he has authority over everything. We know he has authority over the temple because it was for him, by him, and through him, and of him. And he destroys it, 70 AD. Resurrects a new one in the resurrection. Concept of authority based upon personal ownership. In America, one of the greatest rights that we have if we have any private property rights. If they're ever taken away, we become merely serfs before kings. Well, enough of politics. I can't knock on your door and say, uh, Billy Bob, I don't, I don't like your brand of shotgun. Or Betty Sue, who's your lovely wife, I don't like orange couches. I'm going to change them for you. I'm going to take away your browning and give you a Winchester, and I'm going to take away your orange and give you red. Now, I don't know. I'm being silly. I understand. But the point at some point you're going to breach me with is get off of my property. If you have to, you call the sheriff. Well, what I'm submitting to you is this overarching reality that Jesus owns everything. Ultimately, we have no private property rights before heaven. Really, you don't as Americans either. Don't pay your property tax and watch what the sheriff eventually does. Comes and takes it away. But certainly when you breach the reality of the authority of heaven, he owns everything. I love the psalmist. Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I will tell you, he owns every hill and every cow, every elk and every deer and every rabbit, and every blade of grass turns the way he wishes it to turn because of who he is. Certainly, it's a stark reminder of stewardship, but uh, simply affirming that he owns the temple. It's his property, and he can do with it as he wills. The reality that he owns the vine 
And because he owns the vine, his expectation is for fruit. Israel is the vine. He comes for fruit and he finds none. He comes to the temple that he owns and he finds no repentance. And so he has authority over an empty profession. And this is the fearfulness that breaks upon the world today. The extended answer to the debate over authority comes in a parable. Man has two sons. Goes to the first and says, go work in the vineyard. He says, I will, but he doesn't. <laughs> I have two sons, and that's kind of where they fit. They're not here, I don't think. If they are, they'll beat me up afterwards. Man goes to the second and says the same thing. He replies, I will not. But afterwards, he regrets it, and he goes. Oh, for sons and daughters like, like that. The latter did the will of the Father. But notice, notice the judgment. Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe in him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. The outcome is quite clear. A confession of faith, absent repentance and obedience is empty, and the Lord demands answers from the temple mafia. The reality is it not of Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Bring forth fruit as an expression of your repentance. They talked a good game. They wore a good game. They practiced a good game, but their hearts were darkened. It's exactly the point of the curse upon the empty fig tree. It had leaves attesting to the presence of fruit, but there was no fruit, and Jesus withers it in an active parable of utter contempt and disgust. Imagine saying to Jesus, uh, Lord, why'd you do that? That, that? I mean, come on, that fig tree has a right to live, and it, it doesn't bear fruit. That's, that's just the way that it is. Go study botany or agronomy or whatever it is they teach, and, uh, and you'll understand that's folly. Our Lord comes to demand an answer from his creation in light of who he is, the king of the creation. It's their actions that are contemptuous, not his. It's a display of ownership. It's his tree. Because it does not meet his needs, he dispatches it to a state of perpetual ruin. We exist for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth in his second epistle, you've been bought with a price. So why are you bringing into the church teachers who oppose the Apostle Paul whom I have appointed? He's demanding answers in light of what they're doing, rejecting the theology of the great apostle. They're the temple of God. They ought to stand and deliver. Reject the leaven of the false teachers and accept the teaching of the great apostle. The nation had all of the outward signs of faith, but not the heart. It will soon be swept aside. He can do that because he owns the vine and is disgusted at the absence of fruit, and he's disgusted at their abuse of the temple that existed for him. In contrast, sinners like the tax gatherers and prostitutes knew they needed a savior. By the way, you and I as Christians are the counterpart to the first century prostitute and tax gatherer. We were sinners, and we were in desperate need of a Savior. 
And God in his grace enabled us to feel but a measure of his wrath and then gave us Christ that we would flee to him for hope and salvation. God comes in grace in the same way. But some say to him, I, I don't need it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine, Lord. Pass me by. I don't need forgiveness. I've done nothing wrong. I've actually heard men say that. I'm not so sure that one of our presidential contenders hasn't said it. I mean, it hit my ears, but I thought, nah, he's, he's dreaming or he's on something. He, he couldn't have said that. He's never done nothing wrong. He doesn't need forgiveness. Maybe I'll go back and check it out. But whether men say it or not, many men live like it. And that's dangerous ground to walk upon, to be sure. The tax gatherers and the prostitutes clamored for forgiveness out of surging and unrelenting desperation. And they fled to John for repentance, forgiveness in Christ. They go to Jesus and he receives them. That's the gospel. How one is driven to one side and the other side is driven to the other, I don't know other than the sovereignty of God. The great southern theologian Dabney said, repentance feels the disease and faith embraces the remedy. We all stand as tax gatherers and prostitutes before the pristine glory of the holiness of Jesus Christ. We ask him for forgiveness. He owes us nothing, but he freely gives it. Temple Mafia wanted nothing of that. He sweeps them aside. Our problem in America sometimes is that we have so redefined God and sin that we have lost the concept of divine authority. Jesus is imposing upon it, it upon, a, upon us in this text this morning. He has no such concession. He has authority to command and to give to whom he wills, and yet to command nonetheless. I understand there's a rub there. We don't like someone with authority sometimes. We're rebels at heart. If you will, rebels without a cause but rebels who stand under the throne of heaven, who is the cause of time and eternity. Great reminder here of our Lord's authority that extends beyond nature, beyond the creation, the visible, invisible world, beyond the temple, but the giving of life to those whom he wills. Let's look at this momentarily, Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. Jesus is teaching in parables. And then he does something remarkable. He gathers his 12 aside and explains the parable to them. Now, I will tell you, if our Lord was submitting his credentials before the faculty of OU or OSU to get a teaching degree, and he did that, he'd be flunked. You've got to be fair in America. You've got to teach all the same. Jesus doesn't do that. He teaches to one in parables and the others he interprets the parable to them. And why is that? Well, the answer is Matthew 13, 11, the authority of Christ to do as he wills. He said to them, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. My friend, the only way you can reconcile that as a pedagogue is to say our Lord has authority to do as he wills. He can explain to one and deny the explanation to the other because he is Christ and sovereign and authoritative and he owes none of us answers. But that in sovereign grace he gives to us answers in the interpretation ought to bind our hearts all the more to him. 
as a welder welding steel to steel so that the weld becomes stronger than the original steel. So our hearts ought to be riveted to him, to mix my metaphor. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, to you is, is, has been granted to believe in Christ. If you're here as a Christian in mourning and you have confessed your sins before Christ and you claim his blood as that which is essential to your salvation and no other Savior forsaking all others so that you belong to the family of God, you owe your faith to the fact that Jesus gave it to you. If that in and of itself ought to cause your heart to leap for joy and to stay and to abide all the closer to the majesty of the Son of God who has authority to forgive sin. Why in the world would you flee to anyone else when there is no one else? Blessed Redeemer, Christ our Savior. Repentance is an action of man, as was submitting to the baptism of John. The Lord commands and the Lord gives what he commands. Acts chapter 5, in verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. If you're a Christian, you've experienced continually in your life a measure of repentance, and I'm telling you the giver was Christ, the prince and the savior, the only redeemer of God's elect. Acts chapter 11, the 18th verse, the same theology. When they heard this, they quieted down, glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God shows up in the temple to exercise his authority over their lack of fruitfulness. They do not repent. And yet we learn the same scriptures teach us that God gives repentance as a gift just as he gives faith. My friend, that is a savior to bow before and to cling to and to never, never let go because of who he is. For us, he's a friend of sinners. The essence of the gospel we lack and he gave to us. I understand a measure of the human heart because I understand my own darkened heart. We are by nature rebels, children of wrath, fitted out for eternal destruction. But God is rich in mercy, and he made us alive in Christ. And there is no other cause and effect than our coming to Christ. He made us alive. The scriptures give us compelling reasons to bow before this authority. In the American drama of politics, we don't like kings. I give to you the one true king. Over time and eternity, over heaven and hell, that king is Jesus. We stand before him either shaking our fists at him, refusing to repent, or in his sovereign majesty, he gives us new hearts so that we repent, and he gives us faith that we might believe. If you're a Christian, the latter is true of you. But nonetheless, let us affirm daily his authority and daily his sovereignty. And let us keep our own temple pure and clean. In the words of the psalmist, that God takes notice of men with clean hearts and pure hands, that he would come into the temple of our lives and walk, preach and teach, and that we might live as the people of God, as the temple of God, to expand his glorious presence and to remind the world that he alone is king and that he alone has, 
has forgiveness of sin, and he's forgiven ours. And thanks be to God that he has.